It's wonderful to be with you today. Let's open in prayer. Almighty God, Lord of heaven and earth, we are completely dependent on you. And uh, right now, we come before you recognizing Jesus, the highly exalted one, the name above all names. In his name, we come to you now. And we ask you to meet us here. Amen. Oh, thank you. Okay, I assume it'll come up in just a minute. Um, there we go. Thank you. There is uh, the wall of hostility. Um, according to my PowerPoint, that's the design that popped up. So um, we're going to break it down today and hopefully long term as a church. We're talking about who we want to be as a church. And that's what we started last week in the series of sermons that's going to guide us for the next three to four months is going to be about our identity, who we are, who we want to be as a church. And I hope you were paying attention last week when we talked about uh, answering the most, at the most fundamental level, answering that question, who are we? We're disciples of Jesus Christ. And we want to be people who can answer that question naturally, at ease, comfortably. That We want the, the, the words that spring from us when somebody says, who are you? We want the, the words to just come out. Well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm his student. I'm his follower. We're a church filled with disciples of Jesus. It's important that we say that repeatedly, that we say it emphatically, that we make it clear. Because so many people in our world, so many Christians in our world have missed the call. And they think somehow that the call is to go to church. Or the call is to learn to be nice to people. Or the call is to be a good American and mix church in with that. And we saw last week that's not at all what Jesus came bringing us into. He, he invited us into to a life where we take up our cross and we follow him. We, he invited us to make him everything. And in doing so, that's where we find our life. And we just have to say clearly at the outset that the standard means of approach to discipleship have not been working. And I hope that that doesn't disappoint you too bad, but we just have to be open and honest and real about that. The standard means have not been transforming people. We saw last week that one out of 12 young people, according to pretty recent statistics, one out of 12 can be described as highly devoted to Jesus, and they are a reflection of the older people in the churches. Something has gone badly wrong with, with the church overall, when we were called to take up our cross and follow Jesus, and one in 12 of us can be described as highly devoted. Now, this church may be doing much better statistically, but even if we're, we're doubling, tripling, quadrupling the stats, we're still struggling. And we want to do our part to, to restore discipleship to Jesus to its central place in the life of the church and say, that's going to be who we are, and it's going to be the consuming passion of, of our lives individually, of our life together. When we come together on Sundays, we're coming together as learners from Jesus. When we come together in our small groups, when we do things outside of, of this building in various ways, we want to understand we're doing it because we are disciples of Jesus and to, to advance our walk with him. That's who we are. And that's what we're going to come back to over and over again. Everything we talk about, what we're talking about today— 
is about being a disciple to Jesus. Now, I want to start off by talking to you about uh, harmony. Uh, I'm what I would call a good harmonizer. Um, I've been doing it this morning. My brother Brad, actually, a long time ago, he told me I had my own special part in singing. He said it's called off tenor. Now, Brad is somebody I would describe as very ignorant. Um, I'm assuming he's going to be watching these, these videos. So, um, yeah. uh, so he, he doesn't really know about me. Um, in fact, by the way, I heard what, what uh, Daniel said to Steve last week about the praise team. I've been meaning to approach you, Steve, and see if you're interested in starting an alternate praise team. Um, I, think, I think you and I could get it going. If you're interested... Uh, see me and Steve. I think we can, we can work on that. Uh, for some reason, people keep leaving me out. I don't understand. Uh, you know, harmony is a beautiful thing. Um, but has it ever occurred to you that you can't have harmony without diversity? In fact, I'm so used to the parts, because I grew up singing parts in the Church of Christ, I can't hardly sing Happy Birthday without breaking into parts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it, it drives me crazy for everybody to sing the same part. Uh, and it, I'm not saying that's all bad, but it, harmony is beautiful. When, when people sing these different parts like we've had today, the praise team leading us, it's a beautiful thing. You have to have differences in order to have harmony. What I want to tell you about the church is that God wants to take a church and make it harmonize. That's his vision. That's, that's the biblical vision of the church, is the char- church that God makes into a beautiful song with the parts, and they harmonize together. I'm going to show you how specifically that image shows up at the end of the talk today. We're going to do a broad view of the scriptural vision here today, and then we're going to narrow in on one passage at the end. Talking about diversity. Now, diversity is kind of a cultural cliche a little bit today. Like, everybody's for diversity, and you want to be culturally cool, cool before diversity. But you ever thought about why is it? I mean, nobody's against diversity in the United States, usually. I mean, very few. Uh, at least they won't say it out loud if they are. But why has diversity become such a big uh, movement, such, a, such a, a cool thing in our society? Well, I think, and I haven't read anything on this, but I think if you just look back at the values that lie behind it, I think it's based in our vision of equality. You know, we have that built into the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And if we're all equal, then maybe we should all be sharing things. We should be more mixed up. We've got a lot of diverse cultures, diverse backgrounds. Well, they should be together. They shouldn't just be separated with some having this and some having that. We're all equal. Let's bring it together. Right? But let me ask you this. Where did the idea of equality come from? Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration writers said, oh, well, we hold that to be self-evident. Not everybody in history has held that to be self-evident. In fact, it may be the majority has not. And still today, a lot of people across the globe do not hold it to be self-evident. Aristotle, for example, great thinker who influenced generations, he held it to be self-evident that people were not created equal. And it was just as obvious as day to him. You know, there are lower cl- classes. There are people who are born this way, people born that way. They're, they're just not equal. You shouldn't try to act like they're different, uh, that, that they're equal when they're, when they're not actually equal. And that's what a lot of people have assumed throughout history. So how do we get this idea about equality? Without going into a long talk about this, I want to say to you that this is one of the many ways that the, the Lord Jesus has changed the world. Because he came into the world and said, 
oh, guess what? I'm dying for every single one of you. And he didn't come as a rich person. He didn't come as an aristocrat. He didn't come as a politician. He came as a lowly carpenter. And yet he was the Messiah who saved the world. And his very person and his very values and what he did then cast a different light on the entire world. Today in America, many times people who are anti-Christian, but they're fighting for equality, they don't realize they learned it from Jesus. Jesus has changed our world and, and taught us equality. But I want to, uh, you know, there's so much we can get into today. I, I have to move quickly. We just can't talk for long about these things. Equality is not just a moral principle for Christians. Equal, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me say, take that back. A church with equality and diversity is not just a moral principle for Christians. It is a scriptural promise. And we're not just talking about, okay, Jesus taught us some good morals here. Let's try to, try to live that out. That is good, too. But the scriptures promise that God's going to do something to show this in reality. Let me, let me just show you. I've just chosen a few Old Testament passages, three different places we can, we can look at uh, where this, this promise becomes clear. This is the Abraham, I think the second time God appears to Abraham. When Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Right there at the beginning of the call to Abraham is this call not just to be the father of one nation or of one people group, but of many nations, bringing them together. You have things in the Psalms like this, Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, every ethnicity. And the word for nation in Greek it actually is, is a word that, from which we get our word ethnicity. We don't want to just think of big nations like Russia and China, the United States or whatever. It's, it's people groups, ethnicities. The, all, all the people groups should extol him together. This was the promise, not just the Jews. Even though they were God's chosen people, they were chosen to be a light to all the other people groups. Here's a, this is Isaiah 11.10, but it's the way Paul, I like the way uh, it, it, Paul represents it to us in Romans 15. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the nations, in him will the nations hope. Now this is what, that's Jesus, the root of Jesse. Jesse being David's father and Jesus the descendant of, Desi, uh, of David. The nations are going to come to place their hope in Jesus. This is what Paul understood, the great mystery of our faith is that, that Jesus now is the king, but he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of everybody. And let me just say to you, this is not meant to be just a message based upon a cool political idea founded in the Declaration of Independence. That's good as far as it goes. But what we're dealing with here is the climax of human history. God has been planning for all time to fix everything that sin has broken. And one of the major things sin has done is it's torn people apart and torn people groups apart. And God comes along and says, I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to bring it back together. And at the end of the ages, I'm going to start putting humanity back together again. And it's not going to be like this anymore. But in the Messiah, in Jesus, it's going to come back together. That's the scriptural promise that we hold out today. But we don't just believe it in theory. We believe it. We prove it in reality because that's what the church does. And this is tied directly to the gospel. We've missed it for years. People have gotten caught up in an individualistic gospel. A gospel is just about me and my sins getting forgiven and going to heaven when I die. And we've missed the whole 
gospel message that was huge in the New Testament about God doing this thing that the Scriptures promised, healing the nations and bringing them together. Look at Ephesians 2. And he's talking about the Jews and Gentiles coming together. This is what Paul's dealing with so much in his writings. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's the Gentiles, that's the nations, the people groups, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Boy, is there not a dividing wall of hostility between people groups today. And it's one of the curses in the history of the human race that these dividing walls of hostility arise between nations, between races, between ethnicities. And people destroy each other, sometimes physically, many times verbally, emotionally, socially, politically. The dividing wall of hostility that's in our nation today is nothing new. This has been around for generations. Paul was dealing with it, and he saw that Jesus came to do something about it. In his flesh, Jesus said, I'll do something about it. By abolishing the law of commandments in the way that the law was set up to distinguish Jews and Gentiles, to the extent that it did that, Jesus abolished it, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace. We talked about having a peacemaker's night. We are called to be peacemakers because Jesus has made peace. But you need to know that Jesus' approach to peacemaking is different than any other you'll find in the world. He's not just starting a movement. He's not just starting a program. That's not what God did when he came and he saw the mess we were in and said, I want to make peace. He came and said, I'll do something about it in the body of Christ. And not just as a metaphor, but as a reality. He said, this hostility, nothing can be done about it except for my son. And look at verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You know what needs to happen in the church? Hostility needs to die. Because Jesus has killed it. And when we let it live, we're letting it do something that's against the cross of Christ. The hostilities that plague our world today and for which we have not found a solution no matter how long we have tried. These hostilities go on and on. And precisely because we ignore the message of Christ, the church lags behind the world a lot of times. We say, oh man, the cross of Christ. I love the cross of Christ. I'll take it. It I find my forgiveness in the cross of Christ, and that is so true, thank God for it. But do you know that the cross of Christ is effective for eradicating racism? You know that that's God's answer to racism and ethnocentrism and all those kind of things that plague our world. It is Jesus on the cross. We have a task that has been given to us as the church to be the fulfillment of the promises of Scripture. And it looks hopeless. It would have looked hopeless in the first century, but Paul believed the gospel. And he said, nope, we're not going to have a Jew church and a Gentile church. 
read your New Testament, man, think about the controversies that the Apostle Paul was dealing with, the headaches he was living with, and anybody can look at that and say, man, I've got the solution. Let's have two different churches. (laughs) He refused to go that route because he knew what the promises of God were. The promises were God, of God weren't, I'm going to kind of fix things, but leave the hostility in place. The promises of God were, in Jesus Christ, I can break down any wall. But see, we can't put our hope in politicians. We can't put our hope in social programs. We can't put our hope in progress. Look, we've had enough time to think about progress. That ship has sailed. People thought that was coming, and it came and went. It didn't work. (laughs) Social progress is never going to fix our problems, but we, as the people of God, believe the gospel, and we believe Jesus Christ can. He himself is our peace. And that is the answer we proclaim. That is why we say in the church, the nations can come together, and we can do something you don't see anywhere else. Now, I'm not saying it's been effective so far. I'm saying that we have failed miserably, broadly speaking, as the church across the world. We have failed miserably to understand this as the gospel, to understand this as an essential part of the gospel, and to make it a serious part of our Christian mission. But that doesn't mean we have to fail. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, and when we see them, we say, okay, we claim that again, and we're going to enter into it again, and we're going to see what Jesus does with it. Today, people say, you've heard this, Brother Charles may have said this uh, a couple months ago, but people say that uh, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And I want to say to you that that is an offense to the gospel. We ought to be pulling our hair out, tearing our clothes when we hear things like that. How can we, the people of Jesus Christ, who stretched out his hands on the cross and said, I'll take the Jews over here and I'll take the nations over here, and I'll be the peace that brings them together, the blood of Christ, tearing down racism, how can we say, now we're going to be the most segregated place in America? It's an offense to the gospel. And I'll tell you what's happened. We have failed. We have failed to make Jesus Christ our most important identity. We have failed to make Jesus Christ our personal identity, our corporate identity. And because of that, other identities have arisen up, and they have become what's central about us. And this is one of the most fundamental things we do as human beings because we have a need to feel good about ourselves, and that need merges with our need to belong to groups. It's, I mean, it's just human. We are made, we're social creatures. We're made to belong. But what we do is, it just happens so naturally. We get in a group, and we immediately start to talk about how our group is better than other groups, and we feel better about ourselves because we're in this group and not in that group. And this has happened along racial and ethnic lines for so long, we don't even know we're doing it. We think, oh, no, I don't do that. But we are doing it. It comes so naturally to us, we don't have to think about it to do it whether it's families or races or political parties, whatever it is, we group ourselves, we denigrate those who are not with us, and we need help. And our answer remains the same as it's always been. Nothing else will we know but Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
the person of Jesus Christ has to become our basic identity in a way that transcends all our other identities. I read years ago about, uh, and I don't remember all the details, but I think it was the 1950s. You can imagine racial tension back then and, uh, between white people and black people, but they did these studies on miners who worked in extremely dangerous conditions. And the miners actually transcended their racism because their identity as miners became more important to them than their identity as black or white. What I want to say to you is that that ought to be happening in Christ all the time. Christ is everything. Look at these scriptures here. We, again, I just don't know if we've really taken these scriptures to heart. Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now think about that. You've, you've clothed yourself with Christ when you're baptized. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The only reason those scriptures do not blow us away is because we've just become so familiar with them. And because we don't live in a world where Jews and Gentiles and slaves are walking around. If we did, we would understand fully that this is, this is social dynamite that Paul has just lit and thrown into the church. No slave or free. And listen, that was not just saying, well, okay, now you need to be a little bit nicer to the slaves. <laughs> no slave or free. The song gets it right. It's the Christmas song. Uh, and I don't know if I can tell you the title of it. I'm going to look at my notes here and see if I can find it. The, the verse that goes, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is my brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That song gets that scripture. You don't get it by saying, well, I'll be a little bit nicer. You get it by saying, chains he'll break, because the slave is now my brother. Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put, off, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. What do you, its creator. What do you think will happen when we're renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator? What would you think follows that? Here's one of the main things that follows it. When you're renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator, you learn there is no Greek and Jew. There's no circumcised. And uncircumcised, no barbarian or Scythian, no crazy lunatic people the way you've thought of them, <laughs> slave and free, no black or white, no Hispanic or Asian, no cowboys or eagles. <laughs> you know why? Because Christ is everything. What do you think about Jesus is really the question again. That's where we started last week, right? Who do you say he is? If he's just a good teacher, well, you can try to learn some principles from him. If he's the savior of mankind, if he is transforming the world in his very self, 
then we've got some more learning to do. Christ is all and he is in all. And that is my most fundamental identity. I'm not, first of all, a white person, although I am a very white person, literally. But I'm not, first of all, in my identity, a white person. I'm not, first of all, a Louisianan in my background, although I love the state of Louisiana. I'm not, first of all, even a post, although I love my family. I am, first of all, a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is in me. And Jesus Christ is in Brother Charles and in Brother Julio. And because of that, you see, this is my first concern. What's happening in the body of Christ? How is Jesus moving among us here? What are we learning from him together? E. Stanley Jones is one of the guys I really loved. I sex from church history. He's pretty recent, actually, but uh, uh, in the 20th century. Great evangelist. I've talked about him before, but he knew Gandhi. He was a friend of Gandhi and, and tried to convert Gandhi. He really respected Gandhi and appreciated him. He tried to convert him. But here's something he wrote to Gandhi, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. He's, he's, Gandhi was a big believer in the Sermon on the Mount, and he'd said something to Jones about not finding consolation in it. Listen to what Jones said. You suggested in Calcutta that you did not turn to the Sermon on the Mount for consolation, nor do I. I turn to the person. He embodies the Sermon on the Mount, but he is much more. In him I find principles looking out at me from sad eyes, touching me with strong hands, and loving me with entire self-giving. But if the principles had not come to me clothed in flesh and blood, they would leave me cold. Only life can lift life. Now, Mahatmaji, I may be wrong, but I cannot help feeling that you have caught the principles but missed the person. I want to tell you that a lot of what's happening in our society today, it's not bad, okay? I'm for it. I'm for good social justice causes. But a lot of what's happening is people who've caught principles and missed the person. And in all our efforts against racism and ethnocentrism and all of the evils that accompany those kind of things, they will only take us so far if all we have is principles. And if all our world needed was principles, we would not have needed the incarnation of Jesus. God could have just sent us a book of principles. That's not what he did. He sent us Christ and he said, Christ will be everything in everybody. And he said, here's how you'll heal the world making two into one, making all the nations come together in the body of Christ. That is the biblical vision. I'm not saying we can't make progress through other means. There aren't other good things governmentally, socially, or whatever. But I'm saying the ultimate answer, what we believe as Christians, is this, this is what happens in Christ, in his body. Okay, I'm going to have to move quickly here. I have one more scripture I want to show you. And uh, this is talking about the why so far, big, big picture vision, why, uh, why we should be a church that pursues diversity, racial reconciliation, those kind of things. And we're seeing it's, it's tied to the gospel. It's what God wants to do in healing our world. But now I want to say something to you about how does that happen. And this is where we just get down to basic biblical ethics. Who are we taught to be? 
as followers of Jesus. And we won't spend a long time here. This is Romans 15. After Romans 14, it's a well-known passage where there's a, a divide among the, the people of the church at Rome about what they should do with eating. It may have been an ethnic divide. You can't really prove that, but it would have made sense if it were an ethnic Jews saying one thing, Gentiles saying another. We're not getting into all that this morning, but, but there's a divide on what you should eat. And this was a biblical issue to them, a big deal. You know, should you eat certain meats? Should you not eat them? Should you eat at certain times, not at certain times? And, and Paul basically kind of corrects both sides and says, stop judging each other and learn to live in peace. But here we get to the kind of the climax to what all that was pointing to in, in, at the beginning of Romans 15. So here we go. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, there are different ways to be strong and weak. In this context, in Romans 14, Paul talked about being strong in faith and weak in faith. That's one way to be strong and weak. There are other ways to be strong or weak, too. You can be socially strong. You can be in power, socially or politically or whatever, in the church. You can be weak in those ways, too. I want to just broaden it a little bit so we can apply it to what we might face outside of just weak in faith or strong in faith. Do you consider yourself strong in a variety of ways? Okay, that's all right. But I want you to pay attention to what your obligation is if you're strong to bear with the failings of the weak. Let each of us please his neighbor. Now, I don't really like the translation please, but I don't know a better one to use. We think of please like being a people pleaser or, or something's kind of shallow. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's talking about seeking what's good for your neighbor in a way that blesses them. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's the perspective we have in Christ seeing our neighbors and seeking, our, seeking the good for our neighbors. And then you get to verse 3. For even Christ, that even is important, even the king, even the Messiah, did not please himself. If anybody on earth has ever had a position where he should have been getting his needs met, where he should have been doing what so many people are doing today, and that is claiming their rights. Give me my rights. I want my rights. If anybody was ever in a position to do that, it was King Jesus. People should have been carrying him around on their shoulders. He should have been riding in royal chariots. He should have been eating the nicest food and having people bow to him everywhere he went. Instead, he did not please himself. But as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here Paul is repurposing Psalm 69 and basically applying it to Jesus to say Jesus was not seeking his own benefit. He was bearing the insults of others. He was reproached because of others' reproach. It shouldn't have been his. He was reproached because I was reproached. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches of others fell on Jesus. And they never should have. This is very similar to what Paul says in Galatians 6. Bear each other's burdens. Bear each other's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? Bear each other's burdens. Now let's get specific about this. I, as a white man, get to think about, am I going to bear the burdens of my African-American or my Latino, of my Asian brothers and sisters? 
And I talk, I'm a white person. I talk mainly to white churches. If I were speaking to different, differently composed churches, different audience, maybe I would say different things. But this is my background. And I have to think about this. Do my African-American, do my Latino brothers and sisters, do they have burdens? And have I done anything to try to bear those burdens? I'm not making, this is not a political sermon, guys. Please, please don't shut down because you think it is. That's, this is, for me, the body of Christ. That's what I care about. Have I made efforts to bear the burdens of my brothers and sisters from someone who is socially strong? Is there any chance that ever the reproaches that are sometimes dealt to those who are different than me, is there any chance that those reproaches might ever fall on me? I don't have all the answers. Look, I'm not for violent protest. I don't believe all police officers are bad. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to get into all those things. But I think about things when I think about my brother Charles, who is one of the best men I know. And I think if he's pulled over by a cop and he's scared in a way that I never have to be, I need to care about that. See, I don't, <laughs> I met the mayor, he, he's dead now, I think, so I don't mind saying this. I met the mayor of Farmville, Louisiana a couple years ago, and he gave me his card. It's like, you ever get into any trouble, you just give me a call. <laughs> That's my world, you know. <laughs> Police officer pulled me over a few years ago. He's like, oh, I know your family, whatever. Yeah, you go on, go on your way. Like that's 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 the way I feel, and I love I love the police, <laughs> but I know that's not everybody's experience. And if I'm gonna be, if I'm gonna be Jesus's person in the world, if I'm gonna say I believe the gospel, then I have to take a stance that says I am here for my brothers and sisters who aren't like me and who have different experiences than I do. And I'm still learning, guys. Not all of it comes naturally to me. In fact, the opposite comes naturally to me because of where I was raised and the world I lived in. But it, I'm learning because I know who the real king actually is. And I know what the body of Christ is all about. And I'm ready to stake my life on that. And I know that this is what the world desperately needs to see. Let me just speed to the end of this passage. I'm going too long. I need to stop. For whatever was written, it's written for our learning. He's saying, you know, why he's using the Old Testament verse there, verse 4. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. Let me just say this. That, that's really not the best translation there. It's, it's the, the passage says, may he grant you to think the same thing, pretty much. You translate it literally. Have the same mind. It's another one of those same mind passages. Have the same mind with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. What's so interesting about that 
is that he's just gotten through saying in, first, in, in Romans chapter 14 that you don't agree and you're not going to agree, pretty much. <laughs> Sometimes he'll take passages like this and say, see, the church has to agree on everything. It says the opposite. It's assumed that they disagree. And yet he says to them, I want you to think the same thing. I want you to have the same kind of mindset because there is a higher mindset in Christ. It's the mindset of me prioritizing my brothers and sisters, of me giving myself, of me saying I will bear the reproaches of my brothers and sisters. And that mindset unites us even when we disagree. We're not all going to agree. And our world's at a place right now where the, the disagreements are so strong and so, so severe, we can't expect to say, everybody come together, now you're going to agree. That is a pipe dream. It's never going to work. But there's a way to be united in Christ that transcends disagreements. But it only comes when we recognize who transcends disagreements. That is the Lord Jesus. And he is our highest priority. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the voice idea. There's the harmony. God brings everybody together. And then with one voice we praise God. And that is a beautiful thing when it happens. I was, I'm going to close up here. Let me uh, just share this with you and then read something to you and I'll be done. Uh, I shared this with some of you a little while back, but um, uh, I was in Farmville, Louisiana, where I grew up uh, several years ago, and they would have this fifth Sunday meeting when area churches would come together. And of course, the church is very segregated down there, but the, the black churches and the white churches would come together on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, and they would uh, worship together. And one African-American man got up to lead a song. It was in, in my home church, uh, Darbonne Church of Christ down there. And uh, he got up to lead a song, and you know how it was what a fellowship, and you know how white people sing that song. Like, well, it's not bad, but you know, what a fellowship, what a joy. I, I can beat my hand too. Also, y'all didn't know that. I know the four, four, three, four, six, eight, whatever you need. Praise team. It just, you know, um, that's how we do it. You know, we're we're on a roll with it, keeping our time, whatever. This man got up and he started the song, and this is the way he sang it. What a Fellowship, what a joy divine. That's the way he sang it. And, and, and we, all, all us white people, we were like playing red light, green light. You know, like, oh, no, no, no. Try, go, stop, go, stop. For the first verse. But then on the second verse, we figured it out. And we sang it together. And it was beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I've always thought... That is a microcosm of the kingdom of God. We come together. We don't all get it. We're not all on the same page, but we come together and we listen to each other. We don't just say, come and be like me. Come and sing my songs. We come and we listen to each other and we work it out. And then with one voice, we praise the Lord. And we welcome each other as Christ Jesus has welcomed us to the glory of God. This is the beautiful thing that will draw the world. The world's waiting to see this. They're waiting to see it. It happens in Jesus. Here's what Leslie Newbigin said, great missionary theologian who, who worked 
to bring people to Christ across the globe. I have often stood at the door of a little church with the Christian congregation seated on the ground in the middle of a great circle of Hindus and Muslims standing around. As I opened the scripture and tried to preach the word of God to them, I have always known that my words would only carry weight, would only be believed if those standing around could recognize and those sitting in the middle that the promises of God were being fulfilled. If they could see that this new community in the village represented a new kind of body in which the old divisions of caste and education and temperament were being transcended in a new form of brotherhood. If they could not see anything of the kind, they would not be likely to believe. Let me say to you, my dear brothers and sisters here, that the world needs to see churches that have transcended the divide, where there is a new kind of brotherhood, not because it's a cool political thing to do, because we are the body of the Messiah Jesus. And they're waiting to see this. And guess what? Today we come to this table and we live it out. We come and we take of this loaf and this cup together. And there are no divisions. And we don't do it because the Declaration of Independence said to do it. We don't receive it because we've worked so hard at it. We receive it as a gift of grace together today. We say the body of Christ is one body today by God's grace. The world needs this. The world needs this more than it needs you to go vote. <laughs> more than it needs you to stage a protest. The world needs the body of Christ to come together as one around the table. And that is what we're doing this very day. With the praise team coming up, And let me pray. Our great God and Father, would you please let us live out the reality of your good news. Even in the midst of challenges and differences, Lord, let us, let us know the gentleness and kindness and unifying power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.